everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Awesome. Good morning, Discovery Church. It's good to see you today. Um, Before we jump into the message, just one more update, and we've got just a few more weeks of this, and then uh, we'll know where we're at as a church financially, but just a quick update on our runway campaign and this last floats and finances. If you are somebody that calls Discovery home and you haven't had a chance yet to watch that recording of the floats and finances, you can find that on our church website right now. We actually have a page that's dedicated just to that, but I would love to invite you. I really want you to understand the scope of where we're in, uh, what we're in for this month of July. At the end of this month, we'll be kind of collecting some data, where are we, and then some big decisions will be made moving forward. Uh, One of those uh, things that we reported last week was we are looking to raise about $270,000. Last week, I reported to you that we had raised about $112,000 as of this morning. That number stands at just over $176,000, which is really, really encouraging and exciting. Yeah, you can applaud that. That's awesome. Um, I would say two things to that uh, that you should know. Most of that has come from two big donors, which is phenomenal. Um, One of the things we had talked about at that Floats and Finances was that the state of Colorado, this August or September, uh, is initiating an early tax return. And so each individual, if you filed state taxes in Colorado this last year, individuals will get a $750 return check. Couples will get a $1,500 check. If that's something that A, you didn't know about, or you know it's coming, but you're like, we don't need that, or we'd be happy to give some or all of that away, I got a great place where you can give it. Um, So just wanted you to see that coming, but please, uh, again, if you call Discovery Home, just be praying for our church and some of these big decisions that we have as we move forward. Okay, you're going to need your phone for this. If you brought your phone with you, you're going to need to pull that out. And um, we're going to use this a couple times during our service today, once at the beginning and once at the end. But you're going to want to open up your camera function. I'm serious. Not not enough of you are moving. You need your camera. Hold it up just so I know that you got it. And then on the screen behind me, you're going to see, do we got it? Oh, oh, let me mirror displays. We knew this would be a little clunky, but here we go. Boom. Okay. Hang on one sec. Here we go. Here we go. Okay. Scan in this QR code. Now, what we're about to do, this, this will be really fun, and if you follow me there, especially by the time we get to the end of the service and we do this a second time, oh man, it's, it's going to be really cool. This is also a huge risk. This could be a total disaster, in which case we're going to try it anyway because this has some legs to do some cool stuff for us down the road. But if, if you're still scanning it in, you've got about another five seconds Get that in your phone, and it should bring up a screen, kind of a home screen for you right now. Okay, now, here's what this is that you just downloaded. In a moment, you're all going to answer a question, and you may have seen these things before. They're called word clouds or wordles, but it's a a beautiful picture on a screen of just different words that people would would say to a particular question. So the question that we're going to have for this first one is... When you consider, look at all these people. This is great. You chose your avatars and everything. Um, for, for the next one, just a heads up. It'll take you through the same steps. What's your avatar? What's your name? You're going to be anonymous in the next one. So you can still 
choose the walrus, just it's an anonymous walrus, okay? So just so you see that coming. Also, at some point, if I ask you, like, rate how you're liking the survey, don't rate it. Um, and don't give them your email either. I don't think they're going to do anything weird. But um, here's the question. Pre-COVID, what were jobs that, as you look at now, that you go, I admire the people who do that more now than I did before COVID, okay? Okay, so it should bring up a screen now where you can start answering that question. Start answering that question now. What jobs? Okay, and it's going to populate in real time on the screen behind me what you're doing. You also can have a couple answers. If you see somebody else say something that you're like, oh, I like that, you can vote on that answer, and it will add votes to that. Yeah, yeah, good. Cool. Good stuff. I mean, this is all the, uh, this, this is the, um, the necessary folks, right? The, the folks who are needed by society at minimum to keep going. Yeah, as a parent of a school, of kids who are in school, holy smoke, school was a weird world this last couple years. But there's, there's one in particular, and you can keep going. Um, this is pretty cool, right? Okay, it's working. This is really neat to see. Proof of concept. Um, my mom is a nurse. And uh, I remember in the very early stages of COVID, I, I don't know if you can get back into this headspace, but there was, I mean, roughly, I mean, it was different for everybody, but roughly two weeks to two months where it was like, if you're in a hospital, you're going to die. Like my, my mom had friends who were going to hospitals in New York and the whole like city blocks were just quarantined down. You, you, you couldn't go near them unless you were a nurse. They, I don't know if you remember the news reports, but they were talking about having boats that were going to go off the coast of New York that would be like quarantine, but, and then after a while, they're like, okay, hey, now we're going to need semi-trucks just for all the bodies. Like, if you can remember early on in COVID, it was terrifying. And if you had a friend or a family member who had to report to work at a hospital, there was a real sense early on of like, that they might not make it. Like today might be the day that we find out they tested positive. They don't get to come home because now they're going to quarantine in a special place at the hospital. Some of you lost loved ones that weren't medical workers during COVID and you didn't get to say goodbye and be in the hospital room during that time. I mean, it was a very, it was a really scary time. And one thing that I love about the medical professional folks, and this goes, I mean, I don't see a single one on here that I would think differently about. But when I think about doctors, when I think about nurses, why do they do what they do? Why do they keep showing up? I think they care about people. I, I know that for my mom, that's why she kept showing up. She's selfless. She really cares. The thing that gets her up in the morning is the thought that she gets to help people all day long. It's really cool. And I, I think especially for folks in the medical profession, it's just this driving desire, this belief that I so badly want to make sick things healthy. And, and I love that. I think, I think it captures the heart of what we're going to be talking about today as we dive into our text. But doctors can't stay quarantined if they're going to stay doctors. So we've been diving into this book of Matthew. We've been learning a ton of stuff. I want to catch us up. If you're like, this is my first Sunday or we haven't been here in a while, you're going to get the whole last couple months in about 30 seconds. Are you ready? Here's the book of Matthew so far of what we've covered. And we can take this off the screen. We're good for now. I'm ending the event. All right. How was your event? Smiley face. Thanks, guys. Okay. Um, oh, my goodness. Okay, great. 
Uh, okay, here's what's happened in Matthew so far. Matthew, uh, Matthew is a Jewish man, and he's writing to a very Jewish audience. And there was a strict culture in, in this audience of who was in and who was out. The haves and the have-nots. Who's doing it right and who's not doing it right. The physical setting where most of the story of, of Jesus is taking place is not in the center of where you would expect it to be. It's not happening in Jerusalem. Jerusalem will come on scene much later in the story, but most of what's happening is happening in Galilee. It's out in the sticks, a seemingly illegitimate place for such a grand story to be happening. And this author is a seemingly illegitimate author. Matthew is for sure Jewish, He's a tax collector. We're going to talk about more of that later. It's illegitimate. The first week, the first week we really got into the text, we talked about, Emily talked about the genogram of Jesus, and it's just littered with these illegitimate people. There's prostitutes that are in this story. There's people who have done really wrong, bad, awful things. It's, he's, he's got an illegitimate family history. We find Jesus being born as a baby in the shadow of the temple of this, this castle of Herod. He's born in a barn. It, it's an illegitimate way for a king, for a prince to be born. Then we took a sidestep. We meet John the Baptist, who's a seemingly illegitimate prophet, who's out in the sticks talking about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus encounters him. He begins his own process. He starts calling his own disciples who are not the best and brightest. These are not the Harvard and Princeton and Ivy League guys. They're a bunch of fishermen that he picked off off the side of the road. And the first thing that he invites them to come see is watch as we go heal a whole bunch of people. Are they sick? Are they paralyzed? Are they demon-possessed? Are they illegitimate? Let's go hang out with those folks. That's what he starts teaching these young men to do with him. Then we get this Sermon on the Mount, which is three straight chapters of teaching. And it's not Jesus saying, look at the Bible and then just chuck the Old Testament. That's no good anymore. We're going to do something new. It's Jesus going, you've had this Old Testament, the first chunk of your Bible for so long, but you haven't known how to read it right. Let me interpret this for you because it is so precious and so important. And then last week, we got into these stories of Jesus talked a big game in the Sermon on the Mount. He, he seemed to claim that he was God, that he could do some pretty incredible things. Could he back his talk? And he comes down the mountain, and he encounters this leper, and he heals the leper. And then he encounters this centurion, this Roman guy who has a sick servant, a paralyzed servant at home. He heals Peter's mom, and we see Jesus doing these Ill illegitimate things like stepping into purity and health issues. It's illegitimate. Stepping in and healing the servant of a Roman soldier of the bad guys, it's illegitimate. Healing a woman at the time, major gender barriers being broken down, that's illegitimate. And we still have not reached the highlight of the story yet, and we get there today. This next story, these, these next two, back to back, as his readers are continuing to look at Jesus, the, the first folks who would have been reading this story, they turn this page, they read their stories, and their eyes were already wide. Now they're falling out of their skulls because Jesus is about to do something he has not done yet, and it's completely life-changing to everyone who reads it. So it goes like this, and I want you to imagine, again, we're going to be jumping into these two stories today, but I, I want you to imagine this. Like, if you need to close your eyes to get there, do this. But if you can imagine, Jesus has just been on the water. He crossed the Sea of Galilee, which is not a very big lake. 
crosses the sea. He heals this demon-possessed guy who's not Jewish. He's just come back. As just a fun aside, Jesus had told a scribe who had asked one of the, like basically a college professor, can I follow you? And one of the things Jesus said was, I don't have anywhere to call home. I don't have anywhere to lay my head down. And as soon as we catch up here in Matthew chapter 9, verse 1, the first things that we read is, and after getting into the boat, he crossed the sea and he came to his own town. So he's back in a town called Capernaum. And just then, someone, some people were carrying a paralyzed man laying on a bed. Okay, so again, I, you just, you have to picture it. Like, put yourself in the story. Can you taste the saltiness in the air? Like you're that, you've, you're on the water, the sea spray is in your clothes. You've just witnessed something amazing, and now you pull up on shore, you're back in Jesus' hometown, and before he can even step foot out of the boat, he just wants to go home, <laughs> just to lay his head on his own pillow, before he can even get there as soon as they hit the shore. Here comes a bunch of people carrying some guy on his bed, and the story continues. When Jesus saw their faith, whose faith? It, this whole story is going to continue to be about this guy and, and what Jesus is going to do for this man. But he's propelled forward in this story. For sure, there's something of this guy there. It, it would seem like it would be really easy to go, well, he's talking just about the faith of the friends. I think a full reading of this when you dig into the story is you're watching a group of people, one guy on a bed, some people carrying whose faith did he see? He saw their faith all of them, there's a sense that this Jesus can do something. And it's not an unwarranted faith because back, we're, we're now in Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has been healing paralyzed people. I mean, there, it, this is not some crazy blind thing that they're doing. This is something where they're, they're going, he does this. This is just, this is in his scope of practice. We should take our paralyzed friend. Jesus will fix him up. And the paralyzed guy is nodding as emphatically as he can. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And this is where, if you're reading this story, you have never heard yet Jesus say anything like this. This, this is remarkable. You've, you've heard Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talk about things like forgiveness, forgive your enemies, that God can forgive. But in this moment, Jesus, Jesus has this mic drop statement. He's looking at a paralyzed guy. He's healed paralyzed people. This has kind of been the business that he's been in for a while. You bring me sick people, demons, people, paralyzed people, bam, they're healed. And in this instance, he does something he has not yet done. Then, then the scribes are there. Okay, now again, if you get back into that place, sea spray, it's in your clothes. As soon as you step off, here come, but it's not just these handful of people carrying a guy on a mat. There's seemingly a crowd of people waiting for Jesus to get back. And in that crowd are the college professors, the Bible professors. <laughs> and they start mumbling when they hear Jesus say, your sins are forgiven. Verse three, then some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Now, one thing you might not pick up right away, but that in, in this culture, when you, were to, when you were to call out somebody for blaspheming, that was essentially beginning to whisper, go grab some rocks. We're gonna, we're gonna stone this guy to death. That, that was the penalty for blaspheming at this kind of a level. That's the rumor that starts to be murmured in the crowd. 
So it's, it's not just some talk. They're not just kicking around some idea. There's a real sense of like, we need to get rid of this guy. He, he, this, is, this is not okay. And it's not a kick him out of town. It's kick him out of existence. And some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then I love that it says this. It says, then he said to the paralytic. So he's been having this conversation with these scribes. Just so you know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. Get up. Stand up. Take your bed. Go home. And he stood up. This paralyzed man. He stood up and he went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were filled with awe. And they glorified God who had given such authority to human beings. Okay, one thing we hit last week a couple times is this idea of authority for Matthew right now is a huge deal. We just got off this, this mountainside. Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. He talked a big game. Does he have the authority to back it up? Twice in this passage, he says in verse six, but so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on the earth. And then this crowd of people is in awe because of the authority. And one other thing that is a little troublesome here is that the awe, when you look back in the original language this was written in, it's the, it's the Greek word phobos. It's where we get the word phobia from. This isn't the awe of like, this is amazing. This is the awe of like, whoa, this is a little scary. And, and it's, I don't think that they're responding scarily to the fact that he just healed somebody with paralysis because he's been doing that the whole time and it's been amazing. What's different about this story is that Jesus says, I have the ability to forgive your sins. And that to the crowd is, oh my, this is a little intense. I don't know if I want to be here. It's scary. This story is remarkable. I, I think my favorite parts is that it is a big deal that Jesus tells him to stand up arise would be the word, or arose could be the word here. There's a certain time of year that we love to use that root word in the church. We would say a phrase like, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Matthew is beginning now as he's telling stories to go, I just want you to understand what happens when your sins are forgiven. You stand up from where you were before. And oftentimes, it's a place of paralysis or death. It's a big deal that Jesus says, stand up. And then it's another big deal. And this, I, just the poet that Matthew is, I just, I love how he laces all of this together. The second thing that he says, when he healed the leper that we talked about last week, he comes down off the Sermon on the Mount. There's a leper. He touches him. It's so beautiful. He, he speaks to this guy, totally funny to me. But to the leper, he says, okay, uh, go to the temple, go to the synagogue, 
follow the instructions that were given in the Old Testament for what you have to do now as a leper who's been cleansed. That's where Jesus sends this guy to go. Now, it, it's hilarious to me that, of course, there's no laws in the Old Testament about like, here's what you do when you get healed from paralysis, because people don't get healed from paralysis. Like, that's just, it's not in the Old Testament. And so some of this is like just common sense. Jesus heals him, and he says, hey, go home. But, oh, the poetry of those words. Stand up out of the death that you've been in and go home. Go back to where you have always belonged. In the church, when we use the word repent or repentance, it feels like a really heavy word. But really, when you get down to the core of it, all that means is you've been headed in one direction. Stop. Turn around and come back home. I think Jesus is looking at this guy going, hey, you have a role to now play in life. I am not just sending you anywhere willy-nilly. I'm really not even sending you back to your house. I want you to go home. Go to the place where you have always been meant to be. There's two other things I find hysterical in this story. I cannot imagine being one of the other people that Jesus has healed from paralysis prior to this, and you're watching this whole thing, and you're like, this is so fun. Jesus does all this cool stuff. They bring this paralyzed guy, and you're like just waiting for it to happen, and the first thing that Jesus says is, your sins are forgiven. And all of a sudden, you're like, oh, I peaked too early. Like, can I, what, do I, what do I have to do to get in on this? Jesus, like, I love that. And, and I think then, too, this guy, I, I can just imagine, like, if he's super literal, this is like a bad game of Simon Says, but Jesus heals him. He says, go home. And I can just imagine this guy just standing in his doorway for the rest of his life. Like, this is exactly where Jesus told me to be. I'm going to stay here. Like, he didn't tell me to go anywhere else. This is my spot. I'm rooted. And his friends are like, I, I think it was a metaphor. I just, I love, I love Jesus, and I love this story but it's a big deal that he says, stand up. And it's a huge deal that he says, go home. Oh, this story. So it continues. Um, as, as I was studying this week, I ran across one of my favorite theologians. His name's Dale Bruner. And he just had this quote that I thought captured as we're doing this big study on the entire book of Matthew. I think it captures and locates us right now with how big of a deal this story is. He says this. There can be little question that here we have reached the deepest point in the gospel so far. A man is being made completely right with God, not by virtue of having kept or even having promised to keep God's law or even the Sermon on the Mount, nor is this deepest of all healings given on the basis of a prior repentance. In none of the three accounts of this healing in the gospels is the healed man investigated. He's put right simply on the basis of faith of his little company of friends, the deepest salvation is mediated to the man gratis because of Christ through faith. It is Christ alone. It is only because Jesus chooses. It's by no merit of this man other than he believes that Jesus can do it. He captures Matthew, the gospel, in such a beautiful way. Now, it was really common if you're going to write a book or a letter in this culture that you would start out with a pretty long introduction of, here's who I am, here's who I'm writing to. 
And Matthew really has not done that quite yet. We, we don't know who it is that we're reading right now. And I love that as we get through this part of the story, Matthew has finally introduced the fact that Jesus can forgive sins. And now it's at this point where Matthew goes, hey, there's 12 miracle stories I want to tell you after we get down from this mountainside, the Sermon on the Mount. One of those 12 stories, actually smack dab in the middle of those 12 stories, I want to tell you about a miracle story. Once upon a time, there's a man who was a tax collector. And as we hear this next story, Matthew introduces himself. And I cannot underscore enough how important it is that he has waited until this moment. He's waited until he has established this Jesus has the power to miraculously, miraculously forgive sins. Hi, my name is Matthew. The power of this story, this is it. I mean, this is what makes spirituality a thing in Christianity. The fact that forgiveness can exist, it's a miracle. And Matthew wants you to know this is not just some religiosity that we float around, and forgiven, forgiven, whatever. This is a forgiveness. It's a big deal to Matthew. And now we get to meet him. The story goes like this. Jesus has still not gone home, as far as we know. He's still just gotten off the boat. You can smell the sea spray. You can feel the crunch of the sand under your toes. And as he's walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. And then as they sat at dinner in the house, in Matthew's house, Many tax collectors and sinners came, and they were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees, so this is kind of like the college professors, kind of like the pastors at the time, when they saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and with sinners? But when he heard this, does this sound familiar? It sounds kind of like the other story. Jesus is just kind of eavesdropping in on conversations around. Is he blaspheming? Why is he doing this? And when he heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call not the righteous, but the sinners. Mm. Tax collectors were people who were from the indigenous population of an area, but they were working for the Roman Empire. The reason why the Roman Empire would choose local people is because they knew not only the local customs, but they knew the local people. Capernaum was not a huge town, and this is, this is just a little town that's on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. This is Jesus' hometown. This is Peter and Andrew's hometown. This is where most of the story has been happening. And we talked about this back at the introduction of this whole series, but Jesus knew Matthew. Peter and Andrew had been paying taxes to Matthew for at least months, if not years, prior to this story. Everyone in town knew who Matthew was. He's the local tax collector. He's the sellout. They were required, these tax collectors, to collect a certain amount of money for the Roman Empire, but whatever extra they collected, that was their wage, so they would overtax people. And for Matthew, 
it's most likely there's a street that kind of runs right around the side of Capernaum called the Via Maris. It passes close to the lake shore and then goes to the outskirts of the city. That's probably right about where his personal tax booth was located. Matthew is likely not well respected, to say the least. He's not respected by law, um, by Jewish law, if you were a tax collector, you couldn't testify in court as a witness. You were seen on the same level with robbers or murderers. You were classed together as swindlers. When you would read Old Testament law and as the Pharisees of this time would interpret things, they would say, really, you're on the same level as like unclean people and also unclean animals. You're dirty. We want nothing about you. You're like a feral cat or the unwanted dog that walks around the neighborhood that nobody even cares to call about. You're the scum. And it's, it's so hard for us because we don't really have the same cultural idea in our culture today, but the idea of table fellowship in their world, who do you invite over for dinner, who gets to sit at the table in your house, was a huge deal. If you were a Pharisee, this is a very established thing. There were boundaries established over who got to come to the table and who definitely did not. They were especially known, the Pharisees, for the role that it played in defining the identity of who you were in the group, where you got to sit, what you got to do, how you washed your hands, what different rites were performed over the food that was about to be eaten. To share a table in this culture was pomp and circumstance. It exposed the social strata of what was going on. And these tax collectors and these sinners that Jesus ends up eating with, they're willingly ignoring those rules every day. In the minds of these Pharisees, they correctly see, as Jesus is having dinner with these folks, they correctly see that for Jesus to share a meal with these types of people leads them to believe that he includes them in his own fellowship. He's willing to identify and say, you're with me, we're a group. To put it simply, I'll be friends with you. They also incorrectly think that he is condoning their behavior, but should have correctly seen that really he was just condoning their humanity. Jesus was saying, you're good because God made you, period. When Jesus called this man, And then he goes and has the audacity to sit at this man's table. He gave a particularly striking witness to the depth of the forgiveness of sins. And it's no accident that now, as we're understanding this character of Matthew, that Matthew's going, let me tell you another miracle story. Once upon a time, there was a tax collector, scum, cast aside, And he got invited to sit at a table with a man who forgives sins. He is my friend. And he forgave me too. Miracle. It's this leveling blow. (laughs) And And again, I just, I can't get over the fact he's waited nine chapters now to tell you who the author of this story is. And sure, his name is Matthew, sure. He's a tax collector. Most importantly, he wants you to know in the order of these stories, I want you to know who's writing this story. It's somebody who his sins were forgiven. 
It's a big deal. I also want to point out that Matthew is an unusual yes to this invitation from Jesus. The fishermen, if things don't work out with this young rabbi, they can just go back to fishing if they want to. When Matthew turns in his two weeks to the Roman Empire, it does not come with the ability to return to work after the sabbatical that he's going on. He's fired. His life is over. If it doesn't work out with this little young Jewish rabbi, he doesn't have a network of friends that can help him very well. His life, he's making a huge crossroads decision right here. Now, one other thing I want to point out, and this it might be my favorite. How does this miracle begin? It begins with food. <laughs> Did you pick up that Matthew had probably been working. It's possible that he was at the Sermon on the Mount, but it's, it's more likely that he's just heard about this Jesus running around. And that for Matthew, when he tells his story, and that when he tells about how, how has my life changed, and then what's my structure of moving forward with how I step into the lives of other people. He does not say, this man one day walked up to my tax collecting booth, and he whipped out his Bible, and he said, let me read to you, Genesis 1.1 and just start going through. He doesn't give this long speech. What Jesus does is he says, hey, let's hang out. Can we catch lunch? We, can we go out to coffee? It begins with food. When you think of sharing your faith with other people, how often does it take that awkward imagining of asking a neighbor if you can pray for them, which is not a bad thing? or trying to casually leave a Bible on your desk at work to spark conversation. But have you thought of beginning? And many of you have, and many of you do this with such elegance. But have you thought of just beginning by saying, hey, can we go grab lunch? Can I buy you a coffee? I just want to hear about your life. This idea of sharing a table, or what I would call the theology of the coffee table, and whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, I am so happy to say that food connects us. <laughs> In a world of isolation, invitations to come and eat are some of the best theology that we can practice. Do you need to invite somebody to lunch or to a coffee this week? This might just be a good reminder to say it's some of the best theology, some of the best Jesus following out there. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? I think the religious folks at the time saw their job as to quarantine from sin, as to really try and protect themselves, to hole up as best they could. But I think Jesus, in his statement, the physician comes for the sick. He turns what the idea of spirituality, of what God's kingdom is like on its head for these guys. You, you don't build a foxhole and crawl in it and wait. If you're going to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, man, physicians are out there. They show up. And why do doctors show up to work every day? Why are nurses the ones that we look at after an event like we've just had and go, man, you're remarkable? I think it's because we begin to see their care, their willingness to step in and put at risk to themselves, say, my hope today is to bring healing to places where there is sickness. Jesus says, that's what I'm like, and that's what I'm inviting you to. And then finally, oh, 
when Matthew finishes, well, as he's right in the middle, really, of his story, he uses a really peculiar word. It says this in verse 9, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting, sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up. Or, if you were to look at the Greek word, it uses a word like arose or risen. It's this word that we use at a certain time of year in the church of he's risen indeed. Matthew is saying, here's my resurrection story. Once I was sitting, and then he told me to get up, and then he invited me home. For Matthew, as he's writing his story, he, he has 28 chapters to fit, pick where he's going to insert his own story. The place where he chooses is following a paralyzed man who had the faith that Jesus could heal his body and in return got the healing of his soul. And I think Matthew is looking at that man going, he is my mirror image. I see myself, my own story is his story. We are the same. And that's then where he continues to say, and then here's some of my details. Um, okay, you're going to need your phone one more time. But on the screen, and again, this is a risk. I'm eager for this. I would love for you to consider. Do we got it? I would love for you to consider for this next question. If you could choose a word or two to describe, here's what my life was like before Jesus. And this is really for folks who would say, I'm a follower of Christ. What words would you use from before? Just from before. And if you're like, I'm not a wordsmith, I don't know where to even begin on something like that. Here's some words that might be able to get you started. But in a second, I, I would love to just invite you into a, into a space of going, be as specific and personal as you can. And my hope is that these words will be something that will be revisiting us in future sermons in this series. But here we go. Does everybody have it in their phone? Do you need the QR code one more time? Okay, QR code one more time. Here it comes. All right, lock that guy in. All right. You ready? You can be anonymous for this one again. Anonymous baseball, I see you. All right, we ready? Got it? I still see some phones up. I'm going to wait. Good, good. Okay, here we go. What words describe you? Describe your life before you met Jesus. And same as last time, if you see others that you go, oh, that one's me too, you can vote those up. I'm going to invite the band out. Continue typing if you're still typing. Keep that up on the screen as it continues to morph and we see the places where he's asked us to stand up from, to arise from. We see the parallel. For Matthew, he's going, my story is in this paralytic. And I think for his reader who's chosen to follow Jesus, there's something for us too. We go, my story is in this paralytic. I had faith that Jesus could do something 
what I found was that he forgave my sins and then invited me to come home. Do we see ourselves as broken or hurting or needy? Can we locate our story there too? And if so, even after we're forgiven, I think those then become the people that we feel drawn to serve and love, that we follow our physician around, that we become part of the care team. In Jesus' message in both these stories and in your story, the themes run like this. I forgive you. Stand up. Come home to me. And if you don't know where I am, if you can't find me, I'm with the sick. I'm with the illegitimate. I'm with those who need a doctor. Join me in the healing. This is an invitation to action, not passivity. Forgiveness is not just something that happens once in a person's life, but daily. And the action that it propels us to propels us into the world of sick people. Not in some way that elevates us in any way, shape, or form, but in a way that helps us identify with those who are not well, because we know that story. If today you've been feeling this invitation from Jesus to stand up, to come home, and to join him, but if you haven't RSVP'd yet, all you have to do is say, I accept. I'm standing up. I'm starting my journey home. There'll be folks up here after the end of the service. If that's a prayer that you have been wanting to pray or have prayed just to help you walk through, what do the next steps look like? And if you've ever heard of the idea of baptism, it's just a public way of saying in front of a local church, hey, I'm choosing to join the physician in the work that he's done in my life. We're going to take some time to sing and just to consider these stories, both for what they are in Scripture but for sure what they mean for our own lives. If you're able, let's stand and sing.